Well, open your Bibles with me this morning to the first letter of the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you made your way into the service this morning, I trust you received a copy of the handout so that you can track along with us as we not only study the new material, but connect it with what we've seen so far in this series as we're studying through Peter, his journey, and his pen. So like, if you were to walk up to me and say, and ask this question, what does Egypt look like? First of all, it's a strange question out of the blue, right? What does Egypt look like? But I promise you, I will take up the next 20 to 30 minutes of your life if you'll let me. It was back in around 2003, 2004, I had the opportunity to travel to Egypt as part of a teaching team to teach uh, national pastors from not only Egypt, but from Lebanon. And we would meet in Alexandria at a compound, and we would teach them for a week, um, about 25 hours worth of material, each teacher. And I'll tell you what, that was, that was almost 20 years ago, but I still see the images and smell the smells of Egypt still as I think back to that once-in-a-lifetime trip for me. If you were to ask me what does Egypt look like, I could not only take an hour to give you that answer, but I would share with you probably 100 pictures, about 25 different stories, talk about the many students and, and adults that I met And I'd also talk to you about the tourist sites. I'd want to talk to you about the pyramids. See, what we did is we flew into Cairo, and we had two or three days in Cairo before we commuted all the way to the Mediterranean Sea to the city of Alexandria, which is right there on the sea. And I'd want to tell you that on our first day there, just what what I ate. I've never eaten before. I'm I'm still to this day don't know what it was, but it was delicious. I would tell you how, if I can call it downtown Cairo, There was, um, as beautiful as it was, there was still a density to it. There was was even a stench that I'll never forget. I can't really describe. But at the same time, I found the people to be so friendly and the food so delicious. And then the very next day, I'd want to tell you about the British Museum we went to there in Cairo and uh, the mummies that I saw and uh, just um, different Old Testament artifacts and just a about the different dynasties, what I learned about Egypt. It was fascinating. That day went too quickly. And then before we went to Alexandria, the next day we went to the Great Pyramid and got to, got to see uh, those pyramids, including that one structure that looks like a man and an animal combined and, and, and a, in a prone position, and it was really cool. And then we got in line to go into the Great Pyramid because you could take a tunnel uh, right down to the heart of it, but you were escorted and watched because they didn't want anyone chipping off anything as a souvenir. And we got all the way to the heart of that pyramid, and uh, that was just fantastic. But it was, there was a heaviness in there, like there was so much over you, and you're hoping this thing holds. Then we drove for three hours across the, uh, uh, the desert terrain, I think it was about three, four hours, to Alexandria, right on the Mediterranean. Totally different from Cairo, crystal clear air coming in from the ocean. And my mind immediately, as I'm going across that desert and into Alexandria, thought of some of our early church fathers who called that home. There's a library in Alexandria that's still there today and it's much expanded. I got to, got to go there and tour that. My mind was going not only to Moses on this trip, 
but also to Jeremiah and even to Mary and Joseph and Jesus, who would have known those regions well. Took a lot of pictures, met a lot of people, and I would just go on and on and on with you. I'll stop now for the sermon part of it. But if you said, what does Egypt look like? I take a lot of words and a lot of pictures. It was amazing. But if you were to ask Peter, Peter, what does holiness look like? I'm confident that Peter could get his answer down to one word. One word. And maybe that is a good question that you should be asking. As you walk through your life as a wife, as a husband, as a student, as an employee, an employer, as a minister, as a retiree, as a teenager, as you walk through your days, what does holiness look like? What does it look like? What does it look like in real time, to be specific? And I think I can give you a short answer that we're going to get from Peter this morning. Here's the answer up front. What does holiness look like in real life? The answer is this. It's a life lived in awe. That's what it is. It's a life lived in awe. And I'm not talking about awe as a a, a merely emotive flippancy and familiarity. It's not... A life lived like, oh yeah, I know a lot about the God stuff, and I do the church thing, and, and, uh, and, and I love the songs, and, it's, and the people are nice, and, and there's, just, there's just a flippancy to that. Um, there's, you say, well, I, I, I really emotionally get into the music. Well, that, that's good, but is that all? Because as Peter writes here in 1 Peter chapter 1, living a life of awe goes far broader than that, at the same time far deeper than that. We can see this if we track with his pen through chapter 1. We've looked at the first dozen verses, verses 1 through 12, and we've just seen an amazing description of what your salvation is. When it started, who initiated it, who defends it, who wrote about it, who delivered the message to you, and how did you believe? All that is answered in verses 1 through 12. And all of that is a statement of fact. But when we broke over into verse 13, we saw the first responsive command to verses 1 through 12. And then we got to verse 15 and we saw the second command as a response to verses 1 through 12. Remember the first command we saw the first imperative in verse 13 therefore prepare your minds there it is that's a participle leading up to the main verb the main command preparing your minds for action here's the first command keep sober in your spirit stay focused see clearly based on the gospel i just described to you you're going to have to remove distractions You're going to have to blind yourself and deafen yourself to the calls of your past to come back and see clearly since you stand on the terra firma of verses 1 through 12. There's hope. That's the first command. 
You set your hope, it says in verse 13, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a hope of his return. And then we saw in verse 14, as obedient children, children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, and here's the second command that's a response to the first 12 verses, be holy yourselves. In all your behavior, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What's the first command, the first response to the gospel in your life? Hope. Fix your hope. The second command that we saw last week is this. Be holy. But as we crest into verse 17, he's unloading these pretty tightly. He's pulling the trigger quickly. Because of the gospel in verses 1 through 12, do this, do this, and the third command is our text this morning in verses 17 to 21. Follow along as I read. As if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. And here's the verb, here's the command. Conduct yourselves in fear. Some of your translations may say awe. Conduct yourselves in fear or awe or reverence during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, this third command we see In verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear, in awe, in reverence. So what we see here so far, just by way of review, is that this salvation of verses 1 through 12 births a hope. This hope births a holiness. And this holiness births a fear, an awe. Now I want to talk to you about what does it mean to fear the Lord. Before we get into this, the rest of this passage, biblically, what are we talking about when we talk about the fear of the Lord? Pastor Michael read in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning in our public reading, and right in the heart of that it says, then you'll understand, then you'll know, it says the fear of the Lord. That's a theme that comes around often in the book of Proverbs, and in wisdom literature. And I would even say throughout the Old Testament, and it's not absent in the New Testament either. We're told by one, in one epistle to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. So what is this fear of the Lord? Well, the concept of fear, and it's based on uh, the, the, a word that the root means uh, just that fear. We get our word uh, phobia from it. Peter's using this several times in different directions throughout his epistle. He uses it here in verse 17 of chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 17 of chapter 1. But go over to chapter 2, look at verse 17. 
a summary statement to this paragraph we'll look at later in our study. Peter writes, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, there it is, honor the king. We'll have a lot to say when we get to that one. But he's going to continue to use this concept of fear with different nuances, different directions, in chapter 3. Chapter 3, and, uh, and I would say verse 2, as they observe your chaste and, and this is that word phobos, the root word, for fear or awe, it's translated in this translation, respectful behavior. And then, of course, we have uh, um, verse 6 written to, to, the, to the women, the married women, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any, and it's the same word, fear, the same root word, fear. You could also continue to see this uh, uh, further into his epistle as we will do um, when we get to it. For example, chapter 3, verse 14. Suffice it to say, he's making much of this concept, but the way he's using it, the nuance he's pressing into it here in verse 17 is nothing new. It's consistent with what we've seen in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord. This is not merely an issue of dread, but it doesn't miss that aspect, but it's a dread that produces an awe and a respect, and I argue, an affection, an affection for God. What the fear of the Lord is in concept is this, it's an awareness of the presence of God in your moments. Whether I'm here in Ypsilanti, Michigan, at 11.30 in the morning on Sunday, or whether I'm in Cairo at 11.30 in the morning on the same day separated by time zones God is fully present with me in both. It's a, it's a growing awareness as you press through your moments your mundane moments that God is fully there with you. And He's not there just to spy you out and trip you up. He's there because of His affection for you. If you're his child. And it produces an awe in you. An awareness of his awesome presence. And the fact that you're not consumed reminds you that his affection is for you. It's he himself who takes the initiative to be in right relationship with you. He has reconciled you to himself. And he delights being with you. He delights to indwell you. And if that doesn't produce affection in your heart for him, then you need to look again. That's the fear of the Lord. But this fear that I have towards God, this fear of the Lord, this awe, this reverential awe towards him as his child, does affect not only my relationship with him, but it immediately affects my relationship towards others. I move towards others. I interact with others. I forgive others because of my awareness of his presence fully in my moments. And it also affects not only how I move towards God and towards others, but also how I interact with myself, with my own thoughts. This concept of the fear of the Lord is a dear, 
a dear doctrine to his redeemed. And if it is, then I have a question. What will keep this fear of the Lord? What will keep this fear, this awe that's birthed by knowing that my Father is holy and he's with me? What will keep this fear alive in your days ahead? In your hours in front of you today? And I want to suggest that Peter gives you three realities that will keep this holiness and the resulting awe right in front of you in real time. The three realities, I have them in your notes. First, the first reality is this. It's your right of access. That's what will sober you. That's what will bring joy to your heart. It, that's, what will, that's what will keep this awe embedded in your moments and in your thinking that continues to propel you down this road of personal holiness. It's your right of access. Again, look at verse 17. If you address as father, now stop there. This is a, a theme that he's been on already in chapter 1 a lot. God the Father is alluded to in verse 2, and it's God the Father who initiated your salvation. It's God your Father who's understood now through the next few verses that protects your salvation and even protects you until you get to heaven to enjoy the ultimate fruit of your salvation. It's God the Father. But this Father is not just a distant person who's benign and one that just is in a, in a shade of gray. He is absolutely holy. He's absolutely holy. And we saw this in verse 15. Like the Holy One who called you. Who's the you? The obedient children of verse 14. That's you. If God has redeemed you, there's going to be a difference. There's going to be a growing holiness and obedience. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. I love how he starts that verse. If you address, that's an interesting word, address. In our English, that could mean I wrote a, a card to, to one of you this uh, weekend, and I wrote your address. I addressed the envelope. What are we talking about there? Well, you say, that's just an illustration. Actually, that's not too far removed from the meaning of this particular Greek word. It's not saying, when you, if you address, as a, as a redeemed child of God, if you address the Father, it, it doesn't just mean that you know who He is. It doesn't mean that you can tell others what you've learned about Him. If you address as Father is another way that we can uh, refer to invoking. That we can refer to, if I can oversimplify it, with the approach of prayer. It builds off this obedient children thing in verse 14, and it moves through the absolute holiness and otherness of the Father. And we're blown away by the fact that we have a right of access to Him. I had one job when I was a teenager. I loved this job. I, I, it was, uh, I was doing what now computers do. It was detailed drawing, drafting, and help in working under engineers and and it was a big drawing room. One of the room, drawing rooms of the drawing boards was about as big as the floor space in this room. And, and then there were two other rooms like this, half the size, and did work for Fisher Body, for GM, all that. And, 
And, uh, and, and I just enjoyed that job. I did that several summers, including the first summer we were married, and uh, took some classes and just enjoyed working it out in the real world there. But it was always interesting, you know, you, you sit around and talk to your co-workers on the tables around you or at the break or at the coffee machine, and, and uh, they know their stuff, they're good, and, but they were just terrified almost, some of them, with interacting with the boss. They'd talk about the boss in hushed tones. Uh, if the boss came out of the front office back to the break room in the coffee machine, they scattered like mice back to their tables to get back to being busy. I mean, like, most of them, if not all of them, except for a couple foremen. And I just, I just watched these guys and, and, and gals as they were, there was just, there was just a, an, a discomfort around the boss, a lack of confidence and assurance around them, I guess, I don't know, and a fear that their job might be in jeopardy if they do something wrong. It's just kind of a stereotype back in the 80s and 70s when I was working with pe- that people had towards all their bosses in different jobs. And so I'd watch this every summer. I'd, I'd work there. And then I had a sick joy to me. Every once in a while, when, when I was with a, a, a clump of them, a gathering of these employees, or, um, you know, I, I knew that they would notice me leaving my table, I'd walk out just kind of nonchalantly, walk up the aisle to the break room walk past the break room and actually open the door to the front offices, walk by Julie, who was the main secretary, walk past Pete, who was the vice president of the company, and walk past, I think her name was Janet, who was the kind of the receptionist, walk past a few other offices, and without knocking, I'd open the door at the end of the hall. You know whose door that was? It was the boss. But you know who the boss was? It was my dad. I had a sick joy, didn't I, rubbing that in the face of my fellow employees. I just had an access that they were just like, what? You didn't, you didn't knock? No, why? This, it's my dad. I have the right of access because I'm his son. You, you asked him out for lunch? Yeah. I also told them that you're, all, you're not working a lot. <laughs> you're bored. No, I didn't say that. It was the right of access. You know, it says in verse 17, 17 that you have this right of access because you address as father the one who impartially judges. You address as father this God. You know, as Peter's writing this, he can't help but wonder if his mind goes to a sermon he heard so many times, the Sermon on the Mount, that our Lord preached on so many occasions for those three years. And he heard his Lord say, this is a matter of prayer. This, this right of access. In Matthew 6, verse 9, from the Sermon on the Mount, he's, Jesus said, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You have the right of access. Paul agrees in Romans 8.15, he writes, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You don't even knock. 
Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Paul continues to write about this access we have, this this introduction we have as people into the very presence of God our Father. In Romans 5, he he writes in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And even the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Such access to not just our Father, listen, but to the Father who is holy. Verse 15. To this altogether transcendent Holy One. The fact that we have instant access to him keeps us from just recklessly stomping around in his presence. Yes, we have access, but he's still holy. I remember when I was in a Christian university, I, uh, you know, as as a student, sometimes in any university, but in particular in some Christian universities, the president of those universities can be larger than life. Right or wrong, that's the stamp that can, you can let come onto your, your mind. It's like, wow, you know, you want to kind of watch them when it's raining and see if they walk through a puddle, if they walk on top of it, or if it splits and they go on dry ground. You just say, you're just like, that's the president, you know. Four years of that, And then in God's providence, I was offered a job there to do while I went through seminary. And suddenly I find myself in four meetings a week with the president. Now I'm really tense. Wet armpits, everything. But if that weren't enough... One summer, we all kind of had to scatter. If we, I was a dorm supervisor, but in the summer, we were assigned other jobs just to keep us busy if we needed a job for the summer months. I was put on a, on a cleanup crew, and I was assigned the executive wing and his office, and I had to dust it. So I've come a long way from my freshman year, scared to death, and then I'm in meetings talking, and for some reason, my opinion matters. But now, I'm dusting his office at 11 o'clock at night and no one's around. Or, uh, yeah, it was, it was in the evening when he wasn't around. And I had no accountability in there. Now, let me tell you, this office was big. A few books, not as many as I thought. But he was into swords. You happen to recall anything about me? I like shiny, sharp things like that. I was so tempted sometimes to go sit in his chair kick my feet up on the desk, look at his notes, see what he's going to preach on in chapel, grab a sword off the wall and swing it around in the air. But there's no way I was going to do any of that. Because even though I had a familiarity now, I was very conscious of every move I made, nonetheless. You know, it's interesting. You say, what will keep the awe active in your life 
revisiting over and over and over, not just the fact, but the practice of accessing the Father through prayer. You have the right of access. You know, again, Peter's the one writing this, and we studied Peter's life from the gospel before getting into his epistle. Peter had just said to them earlier in verse 8, you love him that you haven't seen yet. But remember, Peter had seen Jesus. And by the way, in, first, in, in, in John chapter 1, several times, we get the concept and the explicit statement that if you know the Son, you know the Father. As a matter of fact, right before our Lord's crucifixion, before his betrayal and crucifixion in the upper room in John chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, Thomas says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you haven't seen me? Peter had seen what his readers hadn't seen yet. He had seen the person of Christ even in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He had seen this one ascend to the Father's right hand after his resurrection. He had seen him. And he's saying, I'm telling you, that's holiness. And it needs to be a determining factor in your moments. And he went to the Father's right hand in ultimate holiness. Yet you have access to that as well. Your right of access. But there's a second reality that will keep this fresh in your hearts and minds. This awe. And it's what we'll call your realization of accountability. Your realization of accountability. Again, look at verse 17 with me. If you address as father, listen to this, the one who impartially judges. Now we know from James, the epistle of James, we know from Romans, we know from the whole Old Testament, God is not guilty of partiality. The ground is level under the feet of everyone who stand before him. You say, what about the difference between saved and unsaved? There's still nonetheless an accountability to him and an answer that will be demanded for the unsaved, why they rejected him. For the saved, did they walk consistently with their position as a redeemed person? It says, if you address the fa as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. He's, he's back to using that language that he did at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, of being a pilgrim, of being an alien. And he's reminding them that your time on earth is short, there's a beginning and there's an end to this. And he says, during that whole time, as a believer, you need to conduct yourself in a spirit of reverential awe and dread and affection for your Holy Father. Now, we're, let's just stay with the, the theme that Peter has going here. He has this theme going of Father... And children, obedient children. Now all I have to do is ask the parents of toddlers here. Ask the parents of, of little children who are just learning to walk. Once they go from being a paperweight that's cute to a hurricane on two feet, life changes not just for them but for you. What do you do? 
There's a whole market of toddler gear. Ways to corral them in. Gates to put in front of steps. Gates to keep them in different rooms. And you just... And, gate, and things to keep cupboards locked and un, not accessible. You see, you put all these, these, these protective measures in place because of what? It's not that you love your cast iron skillet. You, well, you might love it. But you love your child more. You don't want any harm for them. So you want to protect them from what they wouldn't know otherwise. Bring that into verse 17. He is our Father. And therefore, He is protecting us with what He tells us on how to live our lives. And we will give an account for that. Now, some people look at verse 17 and say, well, are we talking about the eschatological judgment of believers that we read about in in 2 Corinthians? Is it that one, 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Romans chapter 14, is it that one where we're all going to give account? And it's, not, it's, it, it, it's something that we need to be thinking about because someday we'll stand before Christ and it's the award ceremony and all that. Is it that? Or is it the fact that our loving parent will correct us in this life if we need it? Now I tend to take the position it's both sides of the coin. We are to walk... According to our time here, he just said it in verse 17, with fear and awe, but that doesn't dismiss the ultimate standing of the believer before Christ for reward and for loss of reward. I think it's both and. I think it's looking through the telescope through both sides. You can look at the, through the small lens of the telescope to the big lens and see what's far in the future or far away but you can also look at through the large end, down through the small end, and see what's up close, okay? I think it's both and. And by the way, Peter does allude to the fact that some of the Father's correction of his redeemed is happening in this life. In chapter 4, verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? There is a realization of our accountability to this Father that we revere. And that will keep this awe in place in your life. One of my favorite commentaries on the book of 1 Peter is by a man named D. Edmund Hebert. And he writes these words, The attitude advocated is not the craven, cringing dread of a slave before an offended master. No. Rather, it's the reverential awe of a son toward a beloved and esteemed father. The awe that shrinks from whatever would displease or grieve him. End quote. Yeah, that. Maybe it's along the lines of what we read in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one when we come to the Lord's table. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Christians. Or maybe it's the spirit of what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body 
and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You see, with Paul, this reality of your realization of accountability matches what Peter is saying. This goes down not just to what we say and what we do and where we go, but it goes right down to what the Apostle Paul will call our motive. In 1 Corinthians 8, or 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. We're going to give account, and we give account in the moments now, too. But there's a third reality. The third reality. We'll call this one your rescue through Christ. Your rescue through Christ. So what do you mean by this? Well, let me just word it this way. I think Peter is teaching us here, if you will, four questions that we can ask any time of the day, any day of the week, any week of the year, any year of our life. And if we ask these four questions, it will corral our thoughts and our focus back to the rescue that happened in our life when we were rescued from our sin by Jesus Christ. These four questions will always take us back to the gospel. And the gospel will always yield the fruit of holiness and awe. What are these four questions? The first one is, is a how question. And here it is. How much did it cost? How much did my rescue cost? Well, look at verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed or ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You say, how much did it cost? Well, we have to deal with this word redeemed in the New American Standard, verse 18. Some of your translations say ransomed. What does this mean? Well, you have to hear it through the ears of the readers, right? And from the Paul of Peter here. Back in that day, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, and I think Peter's writing predominantly to Gentiles with some Jews present, uh, Christian Jews. But how would they hear this? Well, they knew back then there were only three types of humans alive. There were slaves, there were free, and thirdly, there were the freed those who used to be slaves, who were no longer slaves. You say, well, how do you change status with that? Well, uh, your status of being a slave and then now being freed often would come when a, a, a conquering army would come in and redistribute the, the assets of humanity that were present, as awful as that is. You could be freed if your master, your, your, your lord, if you will, gave you the option of working extra to earn extra, that over a long period of time you'd be able to purchase your own freedom. Or you might be freed because someone else from the outside entered into the scene and fully purchased you. You say, what's the currency? Well, it's not paper currency. It's the currency of 
of precious metals, of coins, maybe gold and silver. Why did they endure as a currency? Because they just lasted forever, it seems. I mean, how does silver decay? How does gold rust and disappear? Those are precious things. Those are things that are enduring to the human mind. But what does he say here? You were, you were not redeemed with perishable things. He's saying silver, gold, that's nothing. From God's perspective, silver and gold itself perishes. It rusts, it erodes, and at some point it's gone. He says that's not what rescued you from your empty way of life that you inherited from your forefathers. No. Now you could have all the gold and silver in the world from every generation, from every kingdom, and it wouldn't be enough to save you for one hour from your sin. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, years of obedience cannot purchase an hour of disobedience. And he's right. What were you purchased with? You were purchased with the blood of Jesus. You know, the Gentiles, when they think of their freedom from slavery, they would think of, their mind would go back to Egypt and after that, Babylon. The Gentiles who are reading this would think of slaves within the Roman Empire and being purchased or earning your freedom. But not you. When you think of what you've been rescued from, in verse 14, he called it your ignorance. Don't be conformed to your, to your former selves with regards to your ignorance that were driven by your lust. You know what rescued you? is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When he hung on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in those moments that he was fully absorbing the wrath. You say, did he do it all? Did he cover it all for me? Not just for you, but for everyone who would believe. He fully absorbed the wrath of God that was due. And when he was done, he said, it's finished. I'm leaving. And he rose from the dead, which was the Father saying, he's right. It is done. You were purchased with the blood of Jesus. That's how much it cost. There's a second question. It's a what question. What did it produce? What did it produce? Let me tell you something about a ransom. Let me tell you something about a redemption price. A ransom was always, listen, this is important, a new freedom now. It's a new freedom to something and away from something. It's a new freedom for you to move from, in his words here, a futile life, an empty life, and it now sets you on a default trajectory towards holiness. That's what it produces. Commentator Schreiner puts it this way. There, he says, the readers, their experience of alienation in their culture can be traced to their shift in values. Their Horizontal discomfort comes from their vertical commitment. Or better, the end time promise that awaits them has changed everything. It produces a heart that will be different. 
I'll tell you one thing that ransom doesn't produce. It doesn't produce this in a person. Oh, good, I'm not going to go to hell now. I said the prayer. I can do what I want, but I said the prayer. I can actually, it's in, the, it's in the front of my Bible, when I said the nouns and verbs. But there's no difference in their life. See, what do you have to say to a person like that? I don't know the heart, but I, I do know this, that there's such a thing as tares in the church. They look like wheat, they claim they're wheat, but they're not wheat. When you are redeemed, you are set on a new trajectory of holiness and all. You want to hear what Paul said? He said in Titus 2, verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us, listen to this, to redeem us, to ransom us, from what? From every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There it is. Or as 2 Corinthians 5.15 puts it, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Commentator William MacDonald is, is actually compelling when he writes these words. If a believer is ever tempted to return to worldly pleasures and amusements, to adopt worldly modes and patterns, to become like the world in its false ways, then he or she should remember that Christ shed his blood to deliver them from that kind of life. To go back to the world, listen, is to recross the great gulf that bridges for us at staggering cost. It produces something. There's a third question that will get you back to the gospel immediately. It's a when question. When did this start? When did it start? Our house in Chesapeake, Virginia, where we, left for, where we lived for 11 years, and that house, that one house, I don't know who wired that thing, David, but if my wife was using a hair dryer, and remember, she was not the only one with long hair in my house, and it wasn't me, ever. My bangs get long every once in a while. That's about it. But I had twin daughters. One's here. I will not name her. And uh, she was one of the other ones along. I had three ladies, teenagers and college girls, who would be using hair dryers on Sunday morning. I mean, they used them all the time, but on Sunday morning, the window's kind of narrow for all three of them to use it. The first one to use it got it. And when the second one even tried to, guess what happened? It, it shut down the, 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 uh, the circuit. It just blew it. Had to go down. Guess who gets to go down? It's the one with no hair. I get to go down and fix the fuse box, you know, flip the switch, and there it went again. But then we started throughout the house saying, okay, who was first? Where did it start? Who was second? They're the one that brought the house down. And, and we're wanting to know where this thing starts. We don't need to wonder where your salvation starts. Your salvation starts, as we saw in verses 1 through 12, before creation. And it's manifested now, and it's only through Jesus. Look at verse Nine, or verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but as it has appeared in these last times, Peter's saying, I was there, I saw him, for the sake of you, who through him, I love those two words, who through him, you are through him, believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You say, when did it start? Get ready for your fuses to blow. It started before creation. Figure that out. You were chosen before foundation, before the foundation of the world. And then it was manifested, that salvation that was determined then was manifested at a point in time when your faith and repentance were enacted by God. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, I just read it. It said it's through Jesus. We are just a few verses into 1 Peter, and now we're being reminded that not only did the Father initiate your salvation, but so did the Son. You, through him, are believers in God. One question left. And these four questions will always get you right back to the gospel. And right back to holiness. The fourth question is a where question, and it's this. Where does it lead out? What's the end game here? Why are we redeemed? Why are we purchased? And again, I just want to call your attention to verse 20. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. We saw that earlier in the chapter. So that your faith and hope are in God. Those of you who like books, you know what bookends are. You have a bookend here. If you come and look at my office, I have a stack of books or a row of books on my desk. And I have a bookend on this side, a bookend on this side. Those are my most used books in studying. And, uh, and the bookends keep it from falling over. You have here in verse 21 a bookend. And it's the word hope. And you saw it, the first bookend, in verse 13. It's a hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This paragraph starts with a hope and future with Jesus. And it ends on that same note. These are bookends. You say, what are you saying? It's this way. This is what Peter's saying. Because Jesus is alive. Listen. Because Jesus is alive... And because Jesus is exalted, because of that, you now have faith and you now have hope. Hope about what? That you will experience the same. You're going to be glorified in his presence. That's the end game. That's where it leads out into an eternal presence face to face with your father. Now, I need to say something I need you to grasp at this point in 1 Peter. Not just for this sermon, but for this, uh, this pausing point. You ready for this? Why is Peter writing? He's writing because of the suffering that's breaking out. Because of the persecution of Christians. This wave of persecution will even claim the, the, the life of Peter. He's preparing them to suffer well. So I want you to get this. You say suffering? No problem. Your greatest fear now, as a believer, your greatest fear now is not that you'll suffer. Your greatest fear now is that you will shy away from the radical, holiness-producing awe that you were ransomed to enjoy. That's your greatest fear. Your greatest fear is not that you'll suffer, but it's that you'll shy away 
from this radical, holiness-producing awe that you were ransomed to enjoy. So we have our third command. We're to fix our hope on the returning Christ. That hope produces a holiness because our Father is holy. And that holiness produces an awe. That's where it ends. It's a battle for your mind. But being involved in this battle for the mind will either prove or disprove your personal profession of faith. Is there a real redemption at work in your heart? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or come forward, but I, I'm talking to you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you truly are re- redeemed, rescued, and you have this access to this Father and also an accountability and a reminder from the gospel that constantly just draws you into living in the fear of the Lord, an affectionate awe, but a fearful and reverential awe as well. If that's true of you, then has the ground under your foot begun to crumble? Has your traction and desire to be distinct from the perishing world that isn't redeemed, has it waned? Then what's happened this morning from Peter's pen is an act of mercy of calling you back to the family to live consistently with who you are as a child of the Father. But if you're here and you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you've never been born again, this fear of the Lord takes on a a whole other elevated reality to you, I would now add the word terror. And you need to be terrified of this God, this holy God, who if you don't come to him and exercise faith and repentance that he gives you to enter his family, there's a terror to look forward to as you stand before him, not as your father someday, but as your judge. It doesn't have to be that way, though. If you come to Christ and say, I believe I'm a sinner, and I understand that you were crucified for my sin, and you rose from the dead, and you're offering me your free gift of eternal life, you're offering to clothe me with your righteousness, So the Father will receive me as much as he does you. I receive that by faith, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. I repent my futile way of life, and I come to you. Save me. It's not in the nouns and the verbs, my friends. It's in the heart posture that prays like that. You pray like that, even this morning, even right now, you're in. If it's from your heart... And God is opening your eyes to believe and repent. This is a good day for you. Father, I pray that your spirit will work in our hearts. and I pray for those who are your redeemed, who are in our midst. May they hear the fresh call back to holiness and awe. 
it may have become ambient noise in their lives and the culture is the truth. Lord, help this, what Peter's written, to become our truth and the world to be ambient noise. And Lord, I pray for those who need to be born again. I pray you'll give them faith and repentance even right now, even right now. And if they have any questions, may they come talk to me or Pastor Michael, anyone that's been on stage this morning. And we'll take them to a, a room privately and open the word and let them know, show them from scripture how they can have eternal life. Thank you for this passage and for this epistle. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.